Can you can you um, name a place that you've been to that is closest to your idea of true wilderness? Very, very few places that are really wild. The only place I've been that really seemed very, very remote was an island south of the Falkland Islands. And the name of this island? It's called Boshen. What's one place you've been that's closest to your idea of wilderness? Um, that's really easy. It would be the Bay of Biscay. <laughs> I haven't actually uh, not seen uh, so much of the world, so to speak. Uh, I mostly travel in, in Scandinavia, or at least uh, in Europe. Um, but a true wilderness might be then um, the Paswick Valley in, um, yeah, in Norway, actually. But it's between Russia, Finland and, and Norway, just in, in a corner there. Um, I mean, I suppose there are places where you feel like you're on the edge of the world. So, Unst in Shetland, climbing up the huge cliffs there and looking north out to the Atlantic, that felt pretty remote for sure. As you know, I've been very lucky with the, um, the tour leading and I've been to some amazing places. Spitsbergen comes to mind immediately because it was the first kind of great wilderness that, that I had ever experienced and there were times when you really did feel you were on the edge of the world. I think it's probably the Hoo Peninsula but the, the part of the question that fascinates me most is what is true wilderness because I don't believe true ex wilderness exists. Hello, I'm Colin Williams. And I'm Ian Rowlands. And welcome to Beneath the Stream, a podcast about the human experience in the non-human world. And uh, at the very top of the podcast there, you heard the voices of the wildlife artists Jane Smith, Marco Brodder, Darren Rees, Kitty Jones, Chris Wallbank, and the writer Julian Hoffman, who of course we interviewed a few episodes ago. And each was answering the same question, which was, name a place that you've been to that is closest to your idea of a wilderness. Now, we'll let their answers speak for themselves, but they prove that wilderness means many different things to many different people. And following on from our podcast with Dan Richards, we now have a chance to explore a little further the idea of wilderness, what it means to us, and perhaps more importantly, what our view of it says about us. And it's a subject, Ian, that presents many difficulties. What are your initial thoughts when you throw wilderness out there? Yes, yeah, it's, it's such a big topic, isn't it? But it, because it fascinates me, and I think wilderness um, is its almost like that desert island disc thing, isn't it? Choose a place, imagine this place that is bereft of humans. But it also might be um, the fundamentally, I'm not sure that I believe that wilderness exists mm. because humans as yet another animal have occupied pretty much every part of the wilderness that we think doesn't have any humans in so for me you know indigenous people wouldn't really speak of wilderness indigenous people would speak of 
place uh, home know, home yeah. exactly mm. so it's, it's a strange thing that that i'm putting my own perspective on here that we in western europe western society have that view of wilderness but uh and i also like the idea of wilderness being a place in the mind mm. you know it's it's something that um for me i only have to hear the sound of the wind and i i can picture the wild yeah uh, wherever you're hearing it. exactly yeah, yeah. Mm. and it and I wanted to start with that because it's not wilderness is not a thing that's easily defined. And uh, through some of the answers at the top of the podcast, and some, you know, you just do a quick Google search on wilderness, and um, there are a few common elements that seem to be more frequent than okay. others. And, yeah. and actually, potentially, we'd want to a bit later on. We might want to challenge some of those elements, but a few common elements seem to be lack of other people. Okay. Um, uh, accessibility, uh, as in its its difficulty in 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 getting to, not okay. an easy place to get to. Um, a few people speak of being on the edge of something, um, hmm. you know, being on the edge of the world. It, fe- it feels like I'm on the edge of the world, or or about to step off into some great unknown or some great void. Um, and frequently also uh, water and sea and ocean comes into the idea of wilderness. And also that it's quiet. Okay. And uh, you, there, there are no human sounds there, at least. So you might have the roar of the waves, the the, the rush of the wind, but but it's but it's it's human um, noise is reduced. So IUCN, um, the organisation, has has a wilderness area definition. Go on then. That's um, interesting. Uh, the prosaically classified one B. <laughs> And they say that you got to love humans. Uh, I know a wilderness area is as follows: a large, unmodified or slightly modified areas that retain their natural character without permanent or significant human ha- habitation, which are protected and managed so as to preserve their natural condition. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't feel great, does it, when you hear uh, a wilderness area? It doesn't speak to me that that definition of wilderness because it's it's so inherently managed. <laughs> It's, yeah, you yeah. know, it's, it's, yeah. it seems like a contradiction in terms, but it's uh, it's like um, surely wilderness is, is beyond our reach, beyond our management, beyond our um, gift to bestow upon it, and that's that's perhaps that's the sad thing about the impact humans have now on the planet. Um, the master Chinese painter um, Shi Er Chi in the 13th century recommended avoiding painting scenes lacking any places made inaccessible by nature. And so in their eyes and in his eyes, um, you could, if you're going to paint a wilderness, you had to paint a place which you couldn't get to, um, that was inaccessible. Right. Um, and, and so I felt that was this whole accessibility idea. And the IUCN definition kind of goes on and talks about certain characteristics of these wilderness areas. And as if in answer to your comment there, it says wilderness also offers outstanding opportunities for solitude, <laughs> which is almost saying, "Come to the wilderness and yeah. experience solitude." Everybody, everybody, come and you can experience solitude. Which doesn't mean it's inaccessible. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So it, it's um, it's a strange thing. We try to define this thing, but it, it it's ethereal. It's so different in our minds, in our hearts, in reality that it's ethereal. So, which of those definitions sits best with you? The unmodified or without permanent habitation, I think, is the thing that speaks to me most about uh, about wilderness. Um, the other things, so lack of people, 
being on the edge of something has to be terrestrial, has to be quiet. Then they're, they're not; they don't seem to be quite so part of my okay. definition of wilderness as as it does. Um, oh, it's, a, it's a horrible, cliched phrase, but the unspoiled mm-hmm. um, um, nature of it. Because um, interesting, because I was really struck because I hadn't thought about this. Because preparing for the podcast, I hadn't done much other than think about a what wilderness means to me in a couple of places that I've got in my back pocket ready for later on which I think but the one that struck me when you talked about I think particularly when it's terrestrial and how few people speak of wilderness being in the middle of the Pacific Ocean or the middle of the Atlantic or the inhospitality of the wide open sea Mm. and and probably that's about as wild as you'll get and and, and and for me and not for many people that love the ocean or love sailing it's about the most terrifying prospect, actually. Mm. Mm. There's almost almost nothing hospitable about the middle yeah. of the ocean. Yeah. We know that humans can survive. We've found ways to do it. But it, you're almost eager to get off the ocean and get back to land. Yes, you can't inhabit the ocean, though, can you? So it, it's a, it, I, I think the ocean has a claim to be the ultimate wilderness, really. And so I next wanted to talk about the idea of scale. Okay. Because we... When we think of wilderness, we think on a landscape level, don't we? Mm-hmm. We think on a, a level of wide open spaces, um, a very macro level view of what wilderness is. I, I wondered if, if we had a change of heart and by looking more closely, we could learn to see our back gardens, our city verges, um, microscopic living communities if we could learn to treat and see those things as wilderness as much as we could the huge landscapes yeah and i think that's very much um here we are broadcasting from england where i think that's a a fact of life is that most wild places are inherently quite small Mm. so uh, so we end up drawing down into that and it, it it doesn't satisfy my soul but for example, you know, I kind of rewilded my backyard here and turned it all. I just seeded some meadow plants, but then let it go. And for the insects, the invertebrates you see in it, it's it's a wilderness, you know, and it's unmanaged and it's bare patches of sandy soil, great plains of Africa at, a, at an insect level. Um, so I can get with that. I can lay down on the ground and and be part of that. But I know it's not really nurturing me as a human. Mm. for my desire for a while but i can see that i always feel i see it through the perspective of the eyes of another creature what about you, Are you getting... yeah i think so i you know i feel that's almost an essential part of our journey if we're gonna save this planet that, that we live on it's an essential part of the journey to learn to see those communities and environments and little ecologies mm-hmm. um it, as being as wild and as important as the the great open plains or or the great seascapes that we've talked about um, as as being people's natural idea of wilderness. So talking of what we once had, I next wanted to talk about um, how the idea of wilderness has developed in the human imagination. Hmm. Um, and there must have been a moment um, where it moved from the place that humans existed. So we talked earlier about it being home, being viewed as home, 
to being something more abstract, a place that was out there, a place to be avoided in, in many cases. So you take the Old Testament that's littered with references about the wilderness and often associated with death and desolation and being cast out and, and all of those things. And there seems to be a clear difference between how the modern Western developed imagination views wilderness, certainly in the past and now, versus, as we say, those people who would consider what we think of wilderness just as the place they live and the place they work or the place they subsist in. Mm -hmm. And so art seems to be an interesting indicator okay. of, of how we did this now. I was thinking that um, much early Paleolithic art, so 40,000 years ago, um, seems to be representations of the other beings around them, the wild creatures. There's a, there's a predominance often of bison or deer or grazing prey animals, I guess. And then more, I was looking at some recent Paleolithic art in Sicily earlier this year, and you can see a, a change that happens. Water levels rise, the area that once was on the mainland becomes an island. And then all the depictions become of humans and of goats. Mm. And it, it has a much more human-centric focus. There are no depictions of human figures earlier on. So it's almost like a, like a landscape painter painting the world around them with no humans in. And it's, uh, maybe it fits my narrative, which we have a very human-centric mm. view mm. of everything now. Even our, our approach to wilderness, and I imagine through art. You know, if you look at Moran or the other artists of the, the sort of Yellowstone expeditions yeah. in, in the 19th century, they were defining the way that we view wilderness. So, so that's fascinating. I'm going to come on to Thomas Moran mm. in a moment, but if we go, if we move on a little further from, from that cave art, and so I mentioned Chinese art earlier, mm -hmm. um, which was very early on um, in this idea of capturing nature and, and painting nature relatively early on at least. Um, the traditional Chinese art of of Shan Shui, which means mountain water, um, developed in the 5th century. And that sought to paint scenes, and, and there's a quote here, as if seen through the eyes of a bird. And so they were very much aware that uh, they were trying to capture wilderness. Um, these pictures of, of mountains and lakes and rivers, they were trying to capture wilderness um, as if they were one step removed as, <laughs> as, as a human from that, which I, which I found fascinating. But you mentioned Thomas Moran there, and um, I had a fascinating um, uh, encounter with his painting in Washington, D.C., a really famous painting, um, Thomas Moran from 1872, called The Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone, oh, right, which yeah. is, which yeah. is the, the painting you were referring to there. Now, long before the 1860s, when Moran started painting his images of the Hudson River in upstate New York and before he joined surveys striking out into Wyoming and Nevada... Um, the artistic elite of 18th century Europe had already um, developed um, their view of nature, okay. had already developed their view of wilderness. And it was an artistic movement um, that became known as the sublime. And it's a fascinating moment in our, um, in the human imagination when it, came, when it came to wilderness, because there's a few things that contributed that. First of all, the religious fervour of the 16th century. So when places like America really started to be um, colonised and, and people were spreading west, 
they clearly saw the wilderness as a dangerous place, something to be tamed, mm-hmm. and they felt they had been given biblical license sure. to tame this landscape and to turn it into a, a verdant, um, green and pleasant land. Um, you know, scriptures told them that they had dominion over all forms of life, so that that enabled them to kill the wolf, to kill the bear, um, to kill the indigenous people, um, and and to spread west. To do that, they felt they were doing God's work, and indeed. Um, later on in the eighteen, uh, later on in the nineteenth century, the great um, manufacturer of steel traps, a man called Sewell Newhouse, said this: "The trap forms the prow with which ironclad civilization is pushing back barbaric solitude." And so they really thought that you know this kind of this what we now see as destruction of the natural environment was pushing back barbaric solitude. So they wanted to get rid of the very thing that now in the early 21st century we seek um so it's really interesting just just chipping in there because it it it, it goes back to what you were saying about what was the point of divergence really from humans being part of that wilderness to starting to view it in that way and how can you trace that because my suspicion is that it would be in a almost an individual act if you imagine paleolithic humans in caves or in some sort of shelters uh, and there would have been some for whom they inherently always wanted to be out in the outdoors mm. and others that drew into community a, a, a facile example will be um cats <laughs> so you know cats are not just cats are they a domestic cat their character varies enormously they've mm. made documentaries and looked at a whole range of cats around the city of bristol in the uk and it doesn't matter whether you're a farm cat or a countryside cat or a urban cat you can have very different characteristics some want to go exploring and be gone for days others never leave the safety of the windowsill and the sunshine and it strikes me that from a human perspective there would have been individual responses but as maybe there's a, a smaller percentage yeah and i think want to experience the wild places and i think that's the difference between how individuals view wilderness and view the potential dangers or the potential benefits of it um, versus how societies um, view it and how societies are raised to think about um, those things or how to view those things. Mm-hmm. Because then when you add in something like the Industrial Revolution um, to that, so, you know, this religious fervour of pushing back wilderness, the Industrial Revolution, so the loss of um, the loss of backyard nature, um, for want of a better word, um, then that's where this artistic movement, the sublime, really took hold. Um, the poetry of Byron, the art of Turner, and you look into Turner's painting um, called Snowstorm, Hannibal and his army crossing the Alps. That was a painting that Moran saw, Thomas Moran saw, yeah. and was, was heavily influenced by. And what what the sublime wanted to create um, was the absolute abreaction to industrial progress. They wanted the products, they were images and writing that pictured the landscape in what was conceived and perceived to be its most perfect state. And that was interesting because it wasn't just lovely landscapes. Um, it had to be visually arresting. It had to be free of human activity and influence. Are we noticing some <laughs> some similarities with our previous definition of, um, of wilderness? It is closest to its godlike state. They wanted to create Eden. And that meant um, not only taking away humans from those pictures, but taking away almost anything dangerous from those pictures so none of those pictures have 
predators in. Huh. Um, it's all you know. There might mm-hmm. be there might be ungulates. There might be sort yeah. of deer or something like that. But otherwise, it was very very uh, sanitized uh, view of the wilderness. And so by the time Thomas Moran um, joined the expedition to explore the Yellowstone region in 1871. He had already seen Turner's work. He had already understood. And by the time he painted the Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone, which is a picture I went to see in the mm-hmm. Smithsonian mm-hmm. American Art Museum in Washington, D.C., the sublime vision of the American wilderness had been established. So if we can pi- imagine that picture now, it isn't kind of what the Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone looks like. <laughs> Not really. Um, um, and so we're drawn into this descending foreground with two small figures perched on an outcrop of rock looking out through this multicoloured canyon towards these towering falls in the distance. They're sending up plumes of spray. Um, and the information board next to this painting when I saw it said that it was, as you as you said earlier, it was fundamental to the establishment. That painting was fundamental mm. to the establishment of Yellowstone as the world's first national park. Yeah. It, it, it was absolutely fundamental to how we now view wilderness. Um, but, but yeah, the, the human imagination right from cave art through that Chinese 5th century art all the way through to more recent history was about about creating a, a vision of wilderness, some more successful than others. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because there will there's other forms of art still being practised, particularly um, Aboriginal Australian art, mm. which is it, it's capturing a very different view of the natural world and our relationship to it. So it's one sector, a predominant sector of society on the planet has gone in that direction. Yeah. Um, yeah, probably I can feel in my heart as I'm speaking a great lament for that because that relationship. If you talk about Yellowstone, and and Yellowstone is a fascinating place, and there'll be people listening better versed in its history that, than me. But it it is a wild place, deeply cold in the winter, full of perils. Like the Grand Canyon of Yellowstone is an impossible place to cross. You've got to find a long route round to to traverse it. Um, and of course, it has all the geothermal activity. It has a lot of predators in it too. So it would be a formidable place um, for indigenous people to inhabit. And they inhabited it on a seasonal basis. So the Shoshone uh, Indians mm. were there um, at certain times hunting bighorn sheep and, and, and equivalent and coming in at certain times and other tribes too. So um, some places were difficult for humans to be in. But they they were still there, and they it was home, and it had shelters, and it it at that same time it's being portrayed in one way. There were still people visiting it and living it at the time of Moran, yeah, viewing it in an entirely different way. Yeah. And and it seems to me, not not everybody, but you and I come from a particular mind frame, and maybe people listening to do as well. That we're looking to reclaim that notion of how we relate to landscape how we as humans are part of it at a perilous point in our history as humans. Well, and and, and it, it's clear that Moran and his peers um, were... Make, we're making it sound as if Thomas Moran... It's all his fault, <laughs> but of course it isn't. But um, it's clear that Thomas Moran and his peers were wanting to impose a view of wilderness. Uh, they were wanting to, to superimpose a view... Uh, and an attitude upon that landscape they were discovering, or that that you know at least their eyes were discovering. Because as you say, to those people that live there seasonally or or, or pass through it or use that landscape, 
Um, as, as you're inferring, it, it wasn't a wilderness. It, it was a place of great bounty. It was a place of shelter. It was a place of plenty. Um, it was a place of rest. It was a place of recreation already. It mm-hmm. already had a human and natural history of its own. Um, and it was already living that, regardless of whether someone came along and painted it, but then removed all the bits that were inconvenient to remove in that painting. Yeah, and maybe if I think of the work of Ansel Adams, mm. the great photographer, there was a, you know, you see that in his work as it begins on a on an epic grandeur scale and some of the iconic imagery of the Snake River and things like that. Yeah. But it, but it, it it's a transition that we I feel like we're we're in at the moment. We're yeah. in a. You made me think about it when you talk about the, the Chinese approach to the overview of a landscape, if you like. I mean, that, that's like watching. Uh, one of the BBC Planet Earth documentaries, isn't it, where the drone is flying, <laughs> or the, the, we're yeah. flying over the landscape and seeing it as as few humans can, and portraying it as pristine wilderness, or you're flying over Botswana or the Okavango Delta or something, seeing the the scale of the landscape and the landscape forms and the creatures within it in a way that that we don't see in, in every day, but that's increasingly becoming a lie, isn't it? You, you, the, it is. The, the, it's hard to it's hard to identify those bits of landscape without them being whole scale modified by mm. humans now. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, that notion of the bird's eye view of things that humans can't ordinarily see is, is it, it, that's becoming very, very hard to, yeah. to show people. And it, now. and it, and it, it belies not only um, the truth about some of those places, as you say, in terms of their, of how pristine they really are, but it also belies something more fundamental for me, and that is the filth and bloodiness and danger and um, and difficulties of living and surviving in those landscapes as well, which is becoming more important to me as, as part of a definition of wilderness, um, uh, as it is some of those other things as well. And it, it belies all of those things. It belies the close-up nature of of what it's like to to put one foot in front of the other along that ground and, mm-hmm. and share that space with, with all those other beings around. And there's, um, you talked about Ansel Adams, and I think I often think of Ansel Adams as he visualises a lot of what uh, the great writer and conservationist John Muir mm-hmm. um, was wrote about, and he wrote that the clearest way into the universe is through a forest wilderness. Does that go back to what you were saying about scale, though? Because it's interesting, it's making me challenge my own comments in a way because i you know i'm always looking for wilderness to be at scale you know for landscapes to be i think this is a kid and i grew up in a very urban area so look over the rooftops and imagine beyond the nearest rooftop which i couldn't see was wild and it went on for yeah. miles so for me there was that childhood desire for uh, immensity yeah probably and yet um and yeah i was in the forest close to where i live recently and uh and it, it's a relatively small patch bounded by marshland and, and, and the sea. Um, but it's possible to sit down amongst those trees and be immersed in, you know, it's quite uncomfortable. <laughs> it's in the way that when we talk about John Muir, you know, he was very uncomfortable lots of times, but it didn't stop him feeling the sentiment he expressed there. But, you know, damp leaf litter or your, there are insects crawling over. You're quite cold a lot of the time. And, uh, you know, the, of course, it's the whole cult of bushcraft now about how we survive how we build shelters how we survive in the wilderness the things there's a desire for people to want to get back to how would we how would we live in those 
spaces and uh, mm. and I think it's it's, it's interesting it's on quite a small scale perhaps you can go out and, and make yourself uncomfortable enough to see whether wilderness changes from a conceptual idea to something you could really embrace Um, there was a quote from um, the great American writer and scientist and environmentalist, a man who you turned me on to actually many years ago, Aldo Leopold, mm. um, who who asked us what, what avail are forty freedoms without a blank spot on the map? And so he he, he wanted us to experience this um, wilderness as part of wilderness being an unknown as well, and so. Many, many writers, um, you think of um, Annie Dillard, uh, especially many writers have talked about um, what the beauty and magic that comes through familiarity with with a location, with a place, um, very much looking in detail at things as we, as we discussed earlier. Um, and others find different things in, in wilderness, as Aldo Leopold, um, thinking about that, um, Edward Abbey talked about wilderness not being a luxury but being a necessity of the human spirit. Sure. Yeah. And and so many not only in as individual societies and as individuals, but individual artists, individual writers still all see different things when they are challenged by this difficult idea of wilderness and what it means. So trying to bring that full circle then. Um we heard at the top of the podcast some some of our friends and colleagues um, ideas of wilderness and wilderness places what what's your definitive wilderness place hmm. and if I had to ask you the same question which is have you can you name a place that you have been that is closest to your idea of wilderness okay um, and I had thought about that but as as we're talking I actually thought about uh, so I'll give you two places and 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 the first one of them isn't isn't a geographical location because I think the unconscious mind is one of the most wild places. So whether that's um, something experienced through dreams or through altered realities or, um, you know, I do shamanic work. So there's, a, there's actually a, a, a wild place where everything is impossible to predict and anything can happen in the human soul, in the human mind, in the unconscious. And, and I think that's... that's we're very... Um, Nowadays, humans are very attached to the here and now. I want to bang the table, actually. I won't make too much noise. But it's like the physical and the tangible. And what can I put my finger on? And I think indigenous people had two views of wild. And it could be it could be in their unconscious. It could be in the other, in the other world. Um, and so there's a, there's a big part of that for me, is places of experience that are those, as wild as they get. Um, but if you have to do a physical place, I was... I was I've been to quite a few. I've been very lucky. I've done a lot of travelling. And um, um, so I'll choose a place but illustrate it with the humans in it, in a way, which is a strange one. I, I once went chasing a solar eclipse in the high Arctic in uh, Spitsberg and Svalbard, which is the sort of high Arctic above Norway and Russia. And uh, so we had to get to a very inaccessible place where the, 
the path of totality, as they call it, where the, mm. where the eclipse was going to, that's the strip that you had to be in. And in order to get there, we ended up at this island. It's about as remote a place as I've been to called Kvitoya. And it's a desolate rock and ice landscape where the sea is frozen around it most of the time. It's sort of the realm of polar bears. It's a really beautifully scary place, I guess. You know, if something went wrong there, you're in trouble. And that's illustrated by the when you're there, because because for me it's easiest to understand what being in the wild means when imagining how humans cope there. So uh, that's an area that doesn't really have any Inuit population in it. It might have done once upon a time, but I couldn't really track much down about that. But uh, there was a Swedish explorer, Andre, um, in 1897, who mounted a balloon expedition to the North Pole. Of course. Um, so there were two companions, Frankel and Strindberg, and the way they were going to control the balloon was by dragging ropes along the ground that would help steer the balloon. So, yeah, it, it, does, it sounds ill-fated, and it was. <laughs> um, so the balloon crashed. Ornan, the eagle, the balloon was called Ornan. And it crashed after only three days and mm. landed on the ice at Kvitoya. Um, and they spent nearly three months there trying to survive and figure out how to get back because it's so far from anything and surrounded inhospitable surrounded by polar bears and uh but their camp was found by chance in 1930 because nobody ever knew what became of them and their, their bodies were found and they died from um possibly a result of ill-cooked polar bear meat mm. can be highly toxic so you looked at this place and thought i i could not imagine anywhere I'd least want to crash in a balloon, Gavitoya. <laughs> and it, it just seemed like a place that offered no sustenance for humans. But it was magnificent in its desolation. Because of that. Because of that. Mm. And, and particularly, I'd never seen a solar eclipse before. And suddenly looking towards the horizon, the blackness rushed towards you in a most shockingly fast way. It's like this great shadow raced towards you. And we were suddenly enveloped in complete darkness. I mean, I, I, it was so dark that I wouldn't be able to see you. And you just sat very close opposite me at the microphones here. And it went completely black. And then moments later went completely light again. And it was a place of um, extremes. And I'll never forget, really, that, that in those different strands all tied together in one mm. neat package in that place. Mm. And wonderful as it was to be there. I remember seeing the tail flukes of a bowhead whale in the ice there so it's a wild wild place but i couldn't wait to come home mm, and, and and that's interesting because i well just to introduce why i'm gonna the sort of full circle of my imagination and if i was asked that question then there's a quote from uh, barry lopez from his book of wolves and men and he's he's talking about wolves in this but it kind of works on a wilderness basis as well and so I'll just alter the first bit to sort of fit that. This is our, our treatment of the wolf in this case, but you you can replace that with predator or with wilderness, really. Our treatment of the predator goes beyond the casual cruelty sociologists say manifests itself among people under stress. It is the violent expression of a terrible assumption that men have the right to kill other creatures not for what they do, but for what we fear they may do. 
And when I think about wilderness, I think I am a bit like you, attracted to the places that it would feel unimaginable to be stuck in. Um, but I'm going to go with a more recent experience. Okay. Um, I was in the deserts of Israel and Jordan um, in the summer, um, and we spent um, some time and, and some nights out in the deserts of southern Jordan. And they are big landscapes. They're certainly not a wilderness you could think of on, as, as a, on a micro level um, because there's some big landscapes out there, and when you're camping out there um, uh, at night time, um, a whole new world of silence uh, is opened up to you. Um, and even in the daytime, and again, I want to bring a human element to it because we had um, a, a local um, Bedouin gentleman um, who was driving us across the desert and taking us to where we'd be spending the night. Um, and uh, as we stopped in the desert in uh, a kind of uh, an area where there's sort of towering rocks on either side, um, but also at the end of this kind of tunnel of rocks, it opened up into a huge desert vista. It's a mighty space. Um, and um, he sang a song in his own language. And then when I asked him about what it was, he he said it was about the, the beauty and the silence of the desert. And um, all I could do was think to sing him a song in return. And so I, I, I sang him an old English folk song called All Things Are Quite Silent. Um, and, uh, and as we kind of exchanged those songs and exchanged those words, um, it felt as if we were both, you know, we were both feeling... Um, the solitude um, of the desert um, and uh, it felt like a true wilderness to me but it was a true wilderness that had been uh, that had sought to be understood by the Bedouin by by, by this man himself um, I sought to interpret it in song the best way I could in in return for the song that he gave us um, and so it was an, a very interesting wilderness experience and so it's a very recent experience for me which is perhaps why I've picked it um, but again, it is a place, like the places you mentioned, like the places of the Franklin Expedition, that if you were caught out by it, um, it's a place that could kill you. Hmm. And I like that very much. Um, and it's a, it's a reason, I think, why um, wilderness still exists to a certain extent. And that's where I wanted to go last of all, coming full circle, I'm just scribbling some notes here, though, Colin, because uh, if you can hear on the pen here, this yeah. is, dear IUCN, yes, <laughs> read your definition of wilderness. We respectfully advise we've been a place, a place that could kill you would be a much better definition. <laughs> so I interrupted your flow there, but it's uh, it's very poignant. It's very poignant. Yeah, it's very it, affecting. It's and so coming full circle, then I, I wonder what's left for us now in this idea of wilderness. We've we've talked, and I think we both agree that. It's hard to definitively say that wilderness still exists, mm -hmm. um, wh however you define it. Um, but also not beyond the realms of imagination that wilderness is returning as an idea to human hearts and, and human minds. So is wilderness still a valid notion, still a valid idea, do you think? I think it's um, more than ever, and however you represent it in Thomas Moran or the various depictions of wilderness, it's... It's more relevant than ever. We need the idea of wilderness. 
I'd lo- somehow love us to subvert that and see that that the inherently humans are wilderness. You know that we, it's not an out there. It's not an ideal we should aspire to. It's not a a cherished thing that that allows us to continue to live our urban lives, but somehow to reconnect because it's it's the air we breathe, it's the water we drink, it's the things that sustain life, physical life and spiritual life. So I, I somehow there's a way, I believe, that it stops being an idea out there and it becomes inside us. Mm. But I think it's more important than ever. <laughs>